0: Good morning, everyone. It's a, a joy and it's, a, it's reviving to the soul to be back with you and, and to sing with you. Um, I thank you for your prayer and, and I suppose for your patience, but after this morning's greeting, I don't know if I should thank all of you for your patience. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, please open to the book of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 44 to 52. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace." In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for your word. We are grateful for the way that it shapes and forms our church life, that it shapes and challenges our individual lives. As we start a new series today, Lord, in the Gospel of Matthew, we ask that you would bless it to the life of the church, that you would grow us as your people, that you would give us a, a sense of the mission to which we are called. That you would send us, we pray by the power of your Spirit, Amen. Amen. Uh, I have always been fascinated by the words of those three young men in the land of Babylon, in the Book of Daniel: Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you grew up uh, with Veggie Tales, um, then Rack, Shack, and Benny—is that that was my childhood? Was there anyone else like that? No one has seen that that one. Okay. They are Jews, but Judah has fallen, and they are in exile in Babylon, and the most powerful ruler in all the world has set up a 90-foot statue in honor of himself, and he's ordered everybody in the land to bow down to that statue. And they say to the king, after refusing to bow down under threat of the fiery furnace and death, they say, our God is able to deliver us from the furnace, and He will deliver us from your hand. But even if He doesn't, we still are not going to worship your idol. And I've always found two things very striking about what they say. Firstly, their faith. What kind of confidence causes a captive to say without shame or fear of embarrassment, our God will deliver us from your hand? And secondly, what is perhaps more striking is their commitment. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, King, that we would rather die than bow down to that image and give worship to another. It seemed for many of the Jews in that land to be a non-issue, because they are the only three who have been called out on this. Perhaps the other Jews thought, it's not a big deal. Maybe we can bow now and, and justify it and repent later. But we see in these young men a trust and commitment that showed that despite the circumstances they were in, despite the claim that was spoken by a 90-foot golden idol before their eyes, these young men knew to the core of their being that the true and greatest king who rules over all is the one who loves them and that they belong to him. Wherever they find themselves, they belong to him. And this is the clear message of the Bible for each and every one of God's people, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, we do not belong to this world. We belong to a different kingdom and we are loved by our King. We are called to trust him and be devoted in life to him. And we are starting this year off as a church by speaking and talking together about our place and and our effectiveness in the world. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to meet to discuss church growth, and we're going through a series in our home groups, Church Growth and the Power of the Spirit. And what I wanted to do was spend a few weeks talking about the kingdom, talking about the kingdom primarily from Matthew chapter 13, where we will learn what it means that we are to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 13, shares, Jesus shares these seven parables where he explains what the kingdom of heaven is like, and his parables would be confounding to most who would hear, but for the disciples who would hear them with the ears of faith, his teaching would be profound, and it would take what they were hoping for in a kingdom, it would blow the ceiling off of that hope and expand it into something more glorious than they could have imagined. And he gives them a vision that they are to pass on to others. When I was reading through Matthew 13, trying to plan uh, the series. I noticed a parable at the end that I hadn't really noticed before. There's an eighth parable in Matthew chapter 13. It is often overlooked. You might not yourself be very familiar with it. In verses 51 to 52, he asks his disciples, have you understood all of these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And in this last parable, what he's doing is giving his disciples a mission. Are you the ones trained for the kingdom? And it's amazing, the scribes and the Pharisees who listened to the parables didn't get it but these uneducated fishermen from Judea would be the ones to change the world with the message of his kingdom. Those who have ears to hear are not only to hear, they are to speak and to live it out. Bring out the treasures. Bring out the treasures old and new. What you've learned from the scripture, what I'm teaching you, Jesus, is saying, and go with the message. Church, we have got to know what it means that we live as citizens of a different kingdom. We want to live as trained for that kingdom, trained treasure holders whose lives unmask the glory of a king. Now, the word kingdom has become a catchword in church culture, it can mean many different things depending on where you are to different people. So, before we dive into Matthew 13, into these parables, I want to today just lay a theological foundation that will guide us and help us as we apply Jesus' teachings to our lives. I have three headings today as we talk about the kingdom. What do we mean when we talk about the kingdom of heaven? Number one, the kingdom and creation. George Ladd, in his theology of the New Testament, defines kingdom in this way. He says, the kingdom is primarily the dynamic reign or kingly rule of God, and derivatively the sphere in which that rule is experienced. In other words, he's saying the kingdom is God's reign and where that reign is experienced. So in a broad sense, we say that God is sovereign over all things, that he rules over all, You've probably heard that famous quote from Abraham Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian. He said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. That is true. It all belongs to Him. And yet Christ does not reign in exactly the same way over every square inch. There are fallen people. They are fallen angels who live in rebellion to his rule, who oppose it, who do not love the king. So when the gospel speaks of the kingdom of heaven, it means in a a particular sense, his rule of peace and blessing that is reciprocated by devotion and submission and love. Another concise definition of the kingdom is this. The kingdom is God's reign through God's people over God's place. And so the the story of the Bible in a nutshell is the making of a kingdom, a place where God will dwell with his people. And this is not just a spiritual reality. It's not just that I, I die and one day I'll go to be with him in his kingdom. It is the goal of creation. It is what he intends. You won't find the phrase kingdom of God in Genesis 1-3, to but still the concept of kingdom has its roots in the Garden of Eden. A loving king who rules over his good creation through his image bearers. There is peace and prosperity and absence of sin and perfect relationship between God and man. It's a picture of the kingdom. But we challenge the reign of our good king when we believed the enemy's lie. Sin marred what he'd made. What was given was lost. And the rest of the Bible becomes about kingdom redemption. God's reclaiming creation. And so he saves a people. In the book of Exodus, he saves them from slavery and says to them in Exodus nineteen five to 6 Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. They all belong to him, but you will be my treasured possession, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Israel lived with Yahweh in their midst in the promised land, and they experienced covenant blessings of presence, safety, protection, security, prosperity. These are kingdom blessings, and yet they were surrounded by enemies still. And even worse, sin and idolatry waged war for their hearts and the presence of God in their midst was affected by that sin. And so throughout the Old Testament, uh, even in the the nation of Israel, there's this promise of a greater fulfillment, a a redemption. It is the drumbeat of the prophetic witness. There is a, a kingdom coming where God and man will dwell together in perfect peace and there will be freedom from death and pain, and sin, and strife, and freedom from war. And you have those beautiful pictures in the Old Testament, your swords and your shields, you'll beat down into plowshares because you won't need them anymore. There will be no more strife. The kingdom will be established by God's perfect King, the Messiah. It will not come because of human potential or effort. It will come through divine intervention. God pouring out His grace upon a sinful world. And to be trained for this kingdom, for the kingdom, it involves seeing the world in a particular way, a way in which we long for what is to come, long for grace. Paul calls it a groaning. It's what we sang about in that song, Is He Worthy? Romans 8:22 to 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Christ called His disciples to have a a kingdom longing. He calls us to the same when He taught them and teaches us to pray. What are we to pray Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see it come. He wants to shake us out of the thinking that the way things are right now are normal or permanent or right or how they should be because they are not. Broken homes and depression, despair, abuse, sin and darkness, our souls should not accept those things as normal, but rail against them. He wants to shake us out of the thinking that what the world has to offer today is really what counts and really what matters. And Christ wants us to have a vision of kingdom to come as we live even today as citizens of that kingdom. And so there's a tension in the New Testament that is introduced by Jesus. He calls us to this tension in these parables. We eagerly await a kingdom that is to come But then Jesus begins to speak as if the kingdom has already come, as if he's inaugurated it. Right off the bat in his public ministry, there's the story in Luke chapter 4 where he's in his hometown, and he goes to the synagogue, and he takes the, the scroll and opens it up and reads from Isaiah 61, which is a great kingdom passage about the year of the Lord's favor, Good news for the poor, sight for the blind, freedom for the captive and the oppressed. And then he says, astonishingly, in chapter 4, 21, he says, today, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And you're there sitting on that day and you're like, what are you talking about? We are still in this backwater little town surrounded by Rome under oppressive Roman rule. What do you mean the kingdom promise has been fulfilled? It's the same question that was in John the Baptist's heart. In Matthew 3, he's been preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But by Matthew 11, he's thrown into prison by a a wicked king and is sitting there pondering his fate. He sends a message to Jesus to ask, are you the one? Are you the one or should we be looking for another? Because I look around me and I, I don't see kingdom right now. Jesus responds by pointing again to his ministry in Matthew eleven, four to six. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In the very next chapter in Matthew twelve, Jesus casts out a demon. And the people begin to whisper again and ask, can he be the son of David? Is this the one? The Pharisees blaspheme him. They say it is by Beelzebul that he does this, by the devil. Jesus responds, he says, if Satan casts out Satan, then his kingdom is divided. No, Pharisees, not Satan. Verse 28, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Through miracles and casting out demons, raising the dead, walking on water, we see Jesus revealing the truth that the Lord of all creation has come. And that's the point. How has the kingdom come? The kingdom has come because the King has come. And so we live in attention as the people of God in this already, not yet. Kevin DeYoung says this, with Jesus, the kingdom has arrived, but it hasn't fully set up shop. The kingdom of this world has not yet become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, Revelation 11. We have the kingdom now as an appetizer. We can taste it. It is real food, but it's not the main dish. When we think about the kingdom, therefore, and when we talk about our our role as citizens of that kingdom, we have to hold this tension in balance. We are to live with a longing for what is to come, a longing for recreation, but we live and have that longing pervaded by confidence and comfort because we know even now the king reigns. The author of Hebrews uh, speaks in this way to comfort the the Christians, those who are suffering and going through hardship. He wants to encourage them to perseverance, and so he quotes from Psalm chapter 8 in Hebrews chapter 2, and it's a prophecy, Psalm chapter 8, of how all things will be made subject to this great king. And he says in Hebrews 2, 8-9, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. And so we live with the knowledge that our king reigns. He's saying, look, I know you look around at your circumstances All this talk of the reign of Christ and a present kingdom, it seems out of place with your experience, your struggle against sin, the suffering in the world, the opposition to his kingdom. It's true that you live in enemy-occupied territory and that there is another kingdom at play, at work, that causes havoc and destruction in people's lives. But the author of Hebrews, his point is, lift your eyes and see the King. Look to him, the author and the perfecter of your faith. He gives us this invitation in Hebrews 4.16. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That is an access that we have, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So we await a kingdom in all its glory, but we live in the kingdom of his grace today. Number two. The kingdom and the church. The kingdom and the church. Jesus is our reigning king, and we experience that reign now, not in full, but in part. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is speaking of the reconciliation that have happened between Jew and Gentile, their mutual access through the one spirit to the Father. That is a kingdom blessing and a foretaste of what's to come. And he says of us that we all are fellow citizens and members of the household of God. Paul likes to mix his metaphors. You are citizens of the kingdom because you are his children. And it is a truth that must shape the way that you live. So Paul says in Philippians 1.21, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Literally he says, live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. We are to live as citizens So we need to understand how we experience his reign. We experience his reign now in our hearts. He reigns in the hearts of his people, as in the general kingship of Christ, where he says of every molecule of the universe, it is mine, so he says of the believer, he says of you and your life, every aspect of your life belongs to me. This language of ownership is what we see throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 1 Peter 1, 18-19, You were ransomed from few, the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. His reign means your wholehearted devotion to Him we live in the realm of the kingdom of darkness. And so in our fallen state, that kingdom still is at play. But for the Christian, the Spirit has done the work of recreation. That is a kingdom work. And so light holds sway over the dark. Living in the kingdom uh, or kingdom living is not triumphalistic. It, it's not I- ignorant of the struggle that we still have with sin. It's not ignorant of the trouble that's in the world. But it sh- certainly shouldn't be defeatist. We shouldn't have a defeated attitude. We must take seriously the blessings that we have today. The Spirit of God Himself indwelling us and reigning because King Jesus defeated the grave. We cannot be pessimists when His Word says to us things like Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Ephesians 2.5-6, how is this for blessing? Blessing. When we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. How's that for the tension of already, not yet? I'm seated with Him. His Spirit is within me. And yet I know the sinful nature that tugs at my heart, that wants to displace Christ from the throne and place self on the throne. We do it in so many ways. Our motto so quickly becomes not thy kingdom come, but my kingdom come. Our dreams and ambitions so quickly become tied to the world, not to the glory of his kingdom. And even in the life of the church, we can use the kingdom of heaven to spiritualize our own earthly desire for reign. I've got a kingdom agenda. But really, in my heart, it is my throne that is at the center. you would see how well I do ministry. See how I bring him glory. We sometimes use even Jesus as a means to that end, our own glory, prayer as the tool of our own enthroning. We ask God to give us the things that really would place us at the center of our hearts. May God change our hearts that when we pray, your kingdom come, that is what we mean. He reigns in our hearts. Secondly, Jesus reigns now in the church. His reign is not limited to our hearts. If we think of it limited in that way, we make a mistake. The kingdom is more than just how he's growing you and your personal walk with him. Jesus rules over his people together. Now, the church and the kingdom are not the same. There have been mistakes made in the history of the church when we've said that the kingdom of God and the church are the same thing. They're not. But the local church is like a kingdom outpost that receives the unique blessings of its king. In his prayer for the church in Ephesians 1, 21 to 23, Paul speaks of having been raised from the dead, uh, Jesus being raised from the dead and seated in the heavenly places. And he says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And then he says this, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are a spiritual house and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, Christ's presence is mediated among us. It is something beautiful when we gather as the church for preaching, for singing, for communion, for fellowship. When we meet in one another's homes, when we encourage one another and help one another, the king himself is establishing the kingdom. When the lost are found and his reign extends to more people, the king is establishing his kingdom. And in this way, we have a unique foretaste of the blessing that we long and we hope for to be fulfilled one day. Kevin DeYoung again says this, The church does not equal the kingdom, but in this age the kingdom is largely manifested in the church. That's where we find the people of the king. That's where we are supposed to see reconciliation, alleviation of poverty, the mitigation of suffering, the conquering of evil powers, and the worship of King Jesus So keep this in mind as we talk about church growth. A vision for the kingdom is a vision for the growth, reformation, and revival of the church. Finding number three, we experience his reign as he sends us out into the world. Not this number three yet, Auntie Judy. He taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we don't just look at the world and see that the world is not as it should be and then shut our doors and say, one day our King will return to save us and rescue us from our bunker. He sends us out into the world to reflect the future we long for, to reflect the the beauty of our King, His love and grace, His compassion and mercy, His generosity, His holiness, we go out and we reject the things that the world love. We reject greed and favoritism and malice and contempt. We live in the world knowing and understanding that we are, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And Peter gives us the purpose. Is this true of your life, that you may proclaim Proclaim to the world the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out the twelve. He tells them to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, all the while preaching, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the church is called to go. We, We cannot be inward focused, we go with mission, primarily with the gospel. We have got to be more bold in the preaching of the gospel and we go with mercy to back up that preaching of the gospel. We go in love and sacrifice because we want to, we believe what we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Finally, now one last thing. Number three, the kingdom and the cross. There is a reason that the Jews rejected the king. And it was because of the how of his kingdom coming. How does his kingdom come? I read in Hebrews chapter two, verse nine earlier, where the author is encouraging Christians to persevere in their faith amidst difficult circumstances. He says, we can't see everything now subject to him, but we still see him, he says, crowned with glory and honor. But where do we see that glory and honor? Not in the place where the world would think to look, Let me read all of verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Glory and honor because of suffering and death. This is how he established his kingdom. For the Jews, the cross was a stumbling block, Paul says, They thought it was a a failure to bring the kingdom. For others, the cross is merely a hurdle to overcome on the way to glory. But the cross is no failure and it is no mere hurdle. It was the means of His glory and it is only through the cross of Christ that we have any part in His kingdom. If you remember when we went through the Gospel of John, this is John's point when he speaks about the cross. Jesus praying for a glory to come Father, glorify the Son. And in chapter 12, he he prays, he describes this glory as being lifted up, talking about the cross so as to draw all people to himself. In Revelation 1, John calls this blessing upon the church of grace and peace from King Jesus, who he describes as the, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Then he says, what this king has done for us, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and so made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. In an article for the Gospel Coalition, Jeremy Treat summarizes like this. He says, in short, The kingdom and the cross are held together by the Christ, Israel's Messiah, who brings God's reign on earth through his atoning death on the cross. The kingdom is the ultimate goal of the cross, and the cross is the means by which the kingdom comes. Jesus' death is neither the failure of his messianic ministry, nor simply the prelude to his royal glory, but the apex of his kingdom mission. The cross is the throne from which Jesus rules and establishes his kingdom. The shocking paradox of God's reign through Christ crucified certainly appears foolish to fallen human logic. However, perceived through faith, it is the very power and wisdom of God. That's why when we, whenever we speak about the kingdom, we have to keep the cross as central in our thinking We must not lose sight of the cross because then we might begin to think of the kingdom in the way the world would think of the kingdom. All about power. All right, The fact that we live as citizens of the kingdom does not mean that your diagnosis won't come back as cancer. It doesn't mean that you'll never struggle to pay your rent. It doesn't mean that you'll get the best parking spot at the mall. It does mean... That you are loved by the king and he will never let go of you. And being a citizen of his kingdom means fellowship, partaking in his suffering. It means laying down our lives. As he laid down his life, we have been crucified with him. It means self-sacrifice. When he inaugurated the kingdom, he was crowned. And the crown becomes a picture that forms the heart of our citizenship for today. It wasn't a crown of jewels and gold. It was a crown of thorns. And so like those three young men in Babylon, we know our place in the world. We lay down our lives because we love our king. And even if that means we face the flames, we can say, our king has rescued us from a fate far worse than anything we can go through in this life. So even if he does not deliver us from this, we will not bow to another king. Let's pray. Father, very simply, we desire to see a revival in this church of holiness and purity. We desire to have our hearts stretched as we begin to understand more and more what it means that we are living as citizens of your kingdom. We desire that we would have boldness and confidence that we could approach your throne of grace. We know that we are loved by you and we are grateful for that. We are thankful for the cross. We pray that you would send us out on mission. Lord, we ask again that you would shake From us, the complacency into which we've fallen and so often fall. Lord, we look at the things of this world and value them more than your kingdom. Value them more than your reign. We repent, but we ask that your spirit would do a work among us and change us, help us to love you heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ask in Jesus' name.